0: Welcome to the Worship Theology Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeremy Perigo, and this is a space where we're intentionally diving deep into worship and theology. Today my guest is um, Dr. Zach Hicks. Zach is a pastor of Church of the Cross in Birmingham, Alabama, and author of several books including uh, most recently, Before We Gather, which is a great devotional that I've used with worship teams. It's only been out, what, a month or a month and a half, but um, mm-hmm. we've already been using it here at Dort and in other places. Zach, it's so cool to finally like meet you and get to chat.
1: Definitely. I am thrilled to be on the Barry White of Podcasters podcast. You have the most beautiful voice. I've listened to you for such a long time now, and no one compares. Nothing compares to you, Jeremy. Well,
0: as I was getting um, quotes, those that don't know know Zach or haven't seen him before, as I was getting questions, everyone was talking about Zach's Fairly recent luscious locks now, where some of your older pictures have a much more short, tight haircut. But now
1: the worship world is excited about your luscious locks. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's got to be some midlife crisis. I've always wanted to grow out my hair and found myself in situations where it just wasn't expedient. And now is the time. I'm planting a church. Maybe it's my last ditch effort at trying to hang on to the remaining waning vestiges of my youth, but um, I'm doing it and I am thrilled with it. People around me are really concerned uh, and I don't know what to make of all that, but it's, it's happening. Family? what What's the family say? Oh yeah, family doesn't like it, uh, especially my <laughs> wife. Uh, and yeah, the kids mock me. Uh, my church mocks me. My brothers and sisters in the Lord mock me. And I, I just come back with the retort, I am doing this in imitation of our Lord. So... Uh, It's kind of like a Nazarite vow because I'm in the middle. I'm 11 months into a church plant, and uh, in a way I've sort of joked that until we get established as a church and in our denomination, do what's called uh, become particularized, I won't cut my hair. Wow! So uh, that's not true, I, I probably will chop it sometimes, some for point. now, well, I'm enjoying it. Well, today's <laughs> podcast, we're not going to be
0: talking about worship leader hairstyles or what hair He's gel. Done. There probably are yeah, good no, podcasts that no, do that. <laughs> no, <laughs> what tanning no. salon do you use? Ew, um, how no. skinny are your jeans? That's not the point today. Um, but I would love, this is a question we ask a lot of guests, um, what's what's just an experience in corporate worship? You've been a, a pastor, a worship leader, songwriter. What's what's an a a, a event or a time in particular in corporate worship that's
1: um, shaped your life? In college, I started attending uh, a Presbyterian church down in, in uh, Irvine, California. I was in L.A. going to school there, and this was, I grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition and have fond memories and would say, you know, my faith is really shaped by that tradition in a lot of ways. But this was the first time uh, when I attended a a service where I was ever exposed to the public confession of sin. Mm. And I remember those first few Sundays, the feeling and the power of being able to offer that aspect of my honesty before the Lord amongst the people of God. And it was an incredibly, and still is, uh, a moving experience. Uh, A lot of times our worship experiences, you know, are euphoric uh, in that charismatic sense. And I would very much describe my experience, my first experiences of uh, praying a prayer of confession for my sin as charismatic. Mm. Um, I I felt the Spirit meet me there. And the the joy of being honest before the Lord uh, in a way that I'd only been in my private prayers And God, in a sense, saying this is for public worship too. In a way, it was the key uh, toward things that have become really central to my understanding. So, even and we're going to talk about this the quote idea of gospel-centered worship. Even before I was thinking about that theologically, I was being theologized by it experientially in a worship service and its power and potency. Um, Really transformed my relationship with the Lord. I began to incorporate confession in my daily life and that posture of relating to God in that way. um, I now have the kind of ways of speaking about it in hindsight. It was just all experience back then, but that posture really did reorient me toward approaching God in Christ in the power of the Spirit, is what I'd say. So it really overhauled my faith. I mean, some some listeners that, you know, and thinking about myself,
0: if I was in my teens or twenties, um, confession was maybe once a year at revival service or, yeah. you know, that, that first time that, you know, made a profession of faith, come to the altar, in, in reform traditions, liturgical traditions, weekly confession, Anglican daily confession. Um, why why is that maybe important for 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 those who are from other traditions, but have the ability to? To to kind of reshape the liturgy to to draw in things like confession and also assurance of salvation with that why why is that important on a corporate level I'm hearing your your individual experience of that yeah but as a pastor why why should we really be thinking about weekly or daily confession
1: Yeah, I mean, I've I've come to really uh, imbibe that first thesis of Martin Luther's ninety five as a way of uh, understanding the the scriptural call for every Christian. It has to do with my understanding of, of who a Christian is this side of eternity, but post-conversion. Uh, I su- sort of subscribe to the understanding of a place like Romans 7 that views Paul's wrestling with, uh, I'm, I'm not who I want to be, I do what I don't want to do, as the wrestling of a Christian, not a pre-Christian. Um and therefore, as someone who Luther would sort of name as experiencing life as simul iustus et peccator, simultaneously justified and a sinner, um, I confess my sin every day uh, because I need the gospel every day, because I do sin every day. Um, even though my confession upon conversion was a was a, a real marked moment in my life, the reality is I still have sin in my members. I still, I still have things to bring before the Lord and be honest about, and to be reminded of the finished once for all work. Uh, but that application is a daily thing. So in the first of the 95 theses, Luther wrote something to the effect of when our Lord said, repent, he willed that all of life be repentance. And what that means is not only as individuals, but as a body, something marks confession, Uh, something about confession should mark us as Christ followers. Um, it's in a way of continually going back to the not-I-but-Christness that is the Christian walk. The confession is the not-I of the not-I-but-Christ. Um, and you, you start to, when you get that insight, you start to look at all the instances and explications of worship in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you just don't get away from the people of God as the people of God confessing their sin, whether it's in the Psalms, whether it's in the sacrificial patterns of the old covenant, or whether it's in the way that confession marks the new Testament writings and uh, continues on. Oh, well, it's yeah, beautiful. I mean, it was,
0: that wasn't planned, but I think it's, yeah, it's important for us today. We've I had yeah. guest Dr. Shannon Baker. She was looking at the last 10 years of contemporary worship song. And of really many of those songs have lost, um, Concepts such as sin, um, yeah. and and forgiveness is still there. Overcoming still there. Identity as the people of God still mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. But I think, particularly as we look across, t- um, yeah some of the the leaders in the body of Christ who have had massive moral failings and also look to the depravity and brokenness of my own heart. And as you're sharing Mm -hmm. your own heart, that that space of standing is justified people of God as his chosen people, his covenant people. But that doesn't mean we don't fail. That doesn't mean we don't sin. And that doesn't mean we need to, as Paul says, work out that salvation with fear and trembling and confession. Confession is one of those spaces um, as the church corporately. We can do that. To, together, not just in our own quiet time. Well, Zach, you're you're a, yeah, a prolific author writing both things for the church for the for the academy. As I mentioned, a, a new devotional that's that's super helpful for just those you know, in the morning, right before service, um, praying together and digging into God's word. But one of the books that I've used a lot at different seminaries I've taught at here at Dort and in, in London is your book, um, The Worship Pastor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious what what initially led you
1: to, to write this book. I wrote it mainly because of di- uh, vocational angst is how I describe <laughs> it. I mean, well before I was aware that I was writing a book, um, I was amassing insights that helped me to understand my own calling. Um, I had in, in my journey somewhere around the 10th grade at a youth retreat, I had an experience with the Lord and his word where I sensed, uh, an internal call to, uh, ministry, pastoral ministry. And so I went in. I went to my pastor and asked him what pastoral ministry was like. Could you tell me in an hour everything that pastoring is so I can make a decision about whether this thing I'm sensing from the Lord is real? And he didn't, uh, he didn't laugh at me, but he walked me through in a beautiful way. And at the end of that conversation, I said, I think that might be for me. I think the Lord is calling me to this. So my sense of uh, vocation has always been as a pastor. And so in my mind as a 10th grader, I viewed that as what I viewed my pastor as, a preacher, a a teacher, a visitor of people in hospitals and in homes, a catechizer, um, a caregiver, all those sorts of things. And then right around that same time, um, God started in a late bloom fashion for musicians, cultivating musical gifts in me. And uh, so I went to college to study music and ended up, even as I was going to seminary and, quote, pursuing pastoral ministry, I ended up in these worship leader roles in these local churches. And for about eight years of doing this, I kind of started to shake my fist at the Lord and say, you called me to pastoral ministry. When are you going to make me a pastor? Around that time, I started reading worship books that or articles from thinkers like John Whitfleet and people that have you know really shaped the imagination of a lot of worship thought in the 20th and 21st century and the lord started retooling my understanding of being a worship leader music leader however you stylize it and basically the question that I posed to him was, when are you going to make me a pastor? And God said, don't you realize that you already are? That revelation to me sent me down a, a whole course of self-study, reflection historically, like why was it that someone in my position doesn't, uh, didn't view my role as a pastoral one? And what about what I do is pastoral? I re- read others and... In a sense, started building my own job description through note form, note form, outline form, just for my own reflection, and it eventually turned into all these metaphors and uh, this kind of book outline. And through a series of God's providences, uh, ended up becoming a book and something that I, I published. Um, but it really it was born out of my own wrestling with the Lord about what my calling and vocation were. Yeah, I mean. Often, if you search job
0: descriptions, those with some of those pastoral and liturgical and musical skills, the, the term worship leader is is very common and has been. Again, yeah. Friends of ours have traced that term and its use. Lester Ruth, others, like, why are you intentionally using that word worship pastor? I hear in your story mm-hmm. how God has shaped that, but what what maybe what's the difference between how how the term worship leader is using and what you're proposing as a worship pastor?
1: Yeah, I mean, I whenever I go and speak to communities about this, especially if they're more interdenominational contexts, the phrase worship pastor can kind of uh, be difficult because sometimes the title pastor in certain traditions is reserved for a specific person with a specific set of credentials and ordination and study and preparation. Um, and so uh, there. are I have a love-hate relationship with all these titles, you know. (laughs) I think they're all fraught with landmines and difficulties. I mean, the reason that I will use this is to highlight in this present cultural moment amongst many churches uh, in and around my tribes and traditions, um, worship leaders fail to see or under- Notice that our jobs are small p pastoral, whether we like it or not. We're making decisions, whether we know it or not, that are pastoral decisions. And so in a sense, I, I'm raising awareness of that through the title, through the book. I mean, the goal of the book is is to say, uh, you're already a worship pastor it's it's the question of whether you're going to do that intentionally or haphazardly. You know, it's not a question of are you or aren't you. And I'm less concerned about the title honesty. Honestly, you could have any title, but the reality is is you choose songs as you pray prayers, as you come up with the structure and order of a service, as you think about what what words will be in the lips of the people of God, what arrangements surround those words, all those are pastoral decisions that have Consequences for the discipleship and formation of the people of God. So that's why I am trying to raise that phrase a little bit higher in our consciousness, even though it might not be the most helpful way of naming our vocation in all arenas. In, in this, you give kind of 16, and depending on
0: kind of the epilogue, the last little chapter, it's seven, yeah. 17 different kind of roles, metaphors, types. I mean, some of those you've kind of alluded to, disciple maker, prayer leader, missionary, theological dietitian. What which one of these resonates most with you? Or are there a couple? Again, hearing your story, it sounds like a lot of these comes from your own. And as you read this, some of your examples are yeah. coming from your own life. Are there, are there a few of those that you see God's uniquely gifted you? Or there's skills that He's allowed you to,
1: to, to grow in the last uh, few years? Yeah, and I appreciate that, that question. I, I would say at different seasons of my life, Uh, that different ones came to the fore. Like when I was writing the book, I really felt at the center of who I was, I was behaving and thinking like a theological dietician. A few years later, because of the context I was in and a lot of the professional musicians I was working with, artist chaplain really came to the fore of, oh, this this is what I'm really doing here. And at the present, I would say as someone who uh, is now alongside our music leader and worship planner, but very much in the mix of it, because I'm more of the uh, a more classical pastoral role, and Jess Leslie, who's a marvelous pastor of worship for our congregation, is taking the driver's seat. I'm taking the role much more of thinking of worship at, uh, from a caregiver's perspective and thinking a lot more about trauma, thinking a lot more about people's previous worship experiences, especially here in the kind of Burnt, burnt over South. When, when everything's kind of Christian and post-Christian in its ethos, and everyone has church experiences, I'm constantly aware of people's histories and what they're bringing in to our worship space, tradition, and expression, and what may or may not be resonant, what may be difficult, and I'm I'm just, I'm very hyper-aware that our context must be a place of care, and that I need to think about. Um, people's stories and caring and stewarding those stories well. So it changes; it's shifted over the years. When you've seen, uh, you know,
0: job descriptions come up, or friends pass things to you, or you've forwarded those to others, as you look at those, you know, kind of skills, the necessary education. What do you think worship committees are often missing? Um, that maybe you're overlooking some of these key areas that that you're attempting to highlight in your in your book.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say, and and because it's hard to put into a job description, a lot of the the work or um, v- vision that I'm trying to raise in the chapter on emotional shepherding is something that committees and churches, by and large, and worship pastors and pastors are a little underserved in reflection on the. The inherently emotional and psychological, if I can start to blend those two worlds, ways of thinking about how we lead and experience worship services is not something that we're used to reflecting on in any detail, but what I'm finding for pastoral ministry in general and worship leading in in particular, that a, a worship leader having some level of EQ, emotional quotient, emotional intelligence, is really important to their job, and even if it's never studied, um, some I can tell the difference between an emotionally intelligent worship leader and one that's not. And often, the ones that aren't are missing a huge component of awareness of what they're planning and leading, and how that's affecting people, and how the it's creating a, a certain kind of climate and culture in worship that does or does not contribute to healthy formation into the image and likeness of Christ. And you just don't see committees processing that or focusing on that. A question kind of along this line came from some of our friends at Liturgy
0: Fellowship. asks, what's the best advice to move a congregation from viewing a worship position as a music leader to this idea of a pastoral musical shepherd? Um, Kind of thinking about, I think this person was thinking about, you know, the Execution, like get the songs right, right keys, right moments, which a lot of churches want because that's so much a part of Sunday (laughs) Sunday morning worship of doing it right. To 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 shifting to that that kind of worship pastor role, how how would you encourage a church or maybe a worship pastor stuck in this kind of worship leader model?
1: Yeah. I mean, we're sort of talking about the congregation that views their music leader kind of in in the classic way of you're our music director. (laughs) That other person's our pastor, you're our music director. And it's kind of uh, an unspoken agreement from everybody. So the person raising the question is totally right. Like uh, it's not simply that the worship leader begins to view themselves pastorally, in a sense, everybody in the community has got to buy into that vision for it to work. And I I think it comes down to kind of uh, education and behavior. There's the reality that somehow in some form, the congregation and other pastors need to be educated somehow about the, the inherent pastoral qualities that are part of selecting songs, choosing arrangements, doing music and working with people and pastoring them in the moment of uh, musical worship in a worship service and any other moments and elements that they may lead. Um, And I've seen that education take the form as concretely as a pastor and a worship leader reading something like the worship pastor together or reading an article uh, that highlights the pastoral dimension of um, worship leading together just to kind of, be smelling salts for the the pastor to notice, and and uh, a lot of that can go a long way too for the congregation. That gets more difficult because where do you have the venue to educate them, and you don't want to turn the worship service itself into a classroom. That's not its goal. It's there for encounter with the power and presence of the living God. It's it's worship. It's not uh, it's not a classroom. Um, So, But I I do think that there are ways in which worship leaders and music directors can signal by the way that they lead um, how they are, in fact, pastoring them. Uh, Sometimes it comes through just brief moments of reflection. Sometimes it comes through in the way that you intentionally pray over or with your congregation. Sometimes it might come through... Say you get the opportunity to, if you if your church does a kind of formal membership process, it might be great for the music director to come in and be the person who teaches on your worship service, what its flow is, what its purpose and elements are and theology behind it is. When you get a chance to do the things that pastors do, which is to teach, to proclaim, um, to uh, give the word to other people in ways that have... Some form of healthy authority; uh, those become moments where you're signaling and behaving pastorally, even beyond those moments. And then it trickles down. Say you're leading a choir or a, a worship team or a group of musicians, taking moments to be pastoral in those rehearsals, uh, whether it's a devotion or signaling uh, something more catechetical in that in that moment of being like, let's pause and analyze like this one. Section of this song and how it's going to impact the people of God when we lead it on Sunday. Those moments become vehicles through which everyone goes. Oh, what we're doing is pastoral. What you're doing is pastoral. Um, but I, I, you know, there are whole traditions who's who are set up to not view it this way. So I'm not saying it's easy. It's a, it's a nothing less than a culture shift. And culture, depending on the age of your church and the nimble flexibility of your church takes years, decades to shift. So you're in it for the long haul. I'm (laughs) hearing though, like even if you don't have
0: that title, if your title is director of music or worship coordinator or worship leader, that there are some of both the values that are behind this about shepherding of of pastoral ministry can be there really in any anything you're doing as, as you're planning and leading and directing music, as you're doing maybe the checklist of things that are on your job description and that the pastor elders or church council are expecting, you can still be a a pastor of worship, even
1: if that's not on your business card. That's right. Yeah. And that's, that's the most important thing to say. It's kind of like, uh, I, I really do view this from a theological perspective as an extension of the Reformation idea from the scriptures of the priesthood of all believers is that we are all under our head, Christ, the head priest and the high priest, priests to one another. We are all uh, mediators uh, of the word of Christ to one another. So we we are people who give the word to each other and it takes on varying hues and forms depending on our gifts. And for the music director, my priesthood will take certain forms too, but make no mistake, it is pastoral in nature. It's beautiful. You end um, this book with um, kind of
0: this idea of the worship pastor as failure. So he's mortician, you know, Mm -hmm. theological dietitian, discipler, but kind of end with failure. Can you unpack that a little bit?
1: Yeah, um, I'm aware having written the book and the, going through the process of writing, how one could read it in a certain way where you're almost overwhelmed by the task at hand and it becomes a kind of heavy burden of the law that's over you in the sense of this is what you should be as a worship leader. And, you know, fleshly creatures that we are, we might read a, a book like that, read all those metaphors and and immediately turn inward and go, look at all the ways that I don't measure up to this. I wanted to be able to, in light of that, offer a final word with the final word, in that, hey, if you're reading any of this with honesty, you're going to feel like I feel that I can't, I'm a fail, I, I'm not going to be able to live up to this. And so really it was to offer the gospel of grace in, in a few forms, most concretely in the word that in the midst of our failure, uh, Christ is as our true worship leader is the one who is going to carry our, our people is the one who's ultimately going to pastor them in the moment of worship every time as he lives to intercede for us. And as he actively in the language of Hebrew sings in the midst of the congregation, um, he's going to do that for us. And he's going to be that for us in a way that you and I never could. So it really was to just offer that, that uh, burden off of our shoulders. From another angle too, though, uh, I think that, and, and this was part of some of the questions that you sent me to when you were like, does a worship pastor need to be every one of those metaphors? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I actually think not. Um, I The way I've seen this sort of play out is that the worship pastor is not um, a, in my book, is not a, is not a, a, a A collection of roles that gather up in one person, but in fact get executed, and this should be the way it is because we're a church, we're a community, is sort of fulfilled in multiple people. And I find that if all these things are being done well, it's usually done through the giftings of several or many on your church staff or in a volunteer capacity or amongst the teams and the peoples that you work with. And that the Lord is constantly compensating for my deficit and my weakness through the gifting of others. And well, that's a good theology of the body of Christ, right? A, a one spirit, many gifts. And when we are together, we are operating as the body of Christ. And when we're together, we are, quote, the worship pastor uh, for our congregation, for ourselves and for one another. I remember using this
0: book in London when it first came out with students, and particularly two two really great guitar players who were studying worship and theology, and and one of them was really struggling because the other one was just a much better player. He'd played for 15 years, and just mm, arguably, mm. like, the other guy had just really been playing four or five, and so arguably, he just had a lot more time with his guitar, and as he read this book, particularly some of the things around, yeah, like... the the pastoral care, the artist side of things like allowed him to find some of his identity, knowing that Mm. I don't have to be the excellent artist to still be a worship pastor. It doesn't mean I shouldn't grow as a guitarist, but, but again, some of his time was spent working with vulnerable people. Um, and so yeah. as, as he read some of those other chapters his, uh, outside of musical excellence, he's like, yeah, that's where God has given me experience and skill and being able to walk into mm-hmm. a room and attune to the, the needs. And that's what makes me different than than this other guy who were both called to be be pastors. So I, I, yeah, I loved even using that book as a way to say like, yeah, all of these things are absolutely critical in ministry, all of these metaphors, but some of us, yeah, are specifically called or are specifically gifted in ways as as unique image bearers. So yeah, really appreciate that.
1: Yeah, that's so encouraging. Um, it's encouraging to hear that people read it and come away with that kind of excitement over like, oh, I, I can unlock this arena that I didn't know was open to me. And even if I'm feeling a little deficient here, there's a new path that feels native to who I am. Like that's a I'm a, appreciative that that's the way some are reading that. Well, well, one of the one of the things that you really uh, a term
0: that you bring up a lot in your writing, your teaching, podcasts you're on, is this term gospel-centered worship? Um, yeah. I've heard it used by others in, in conferences, mm-hmm. um, but I'd love to hear how does Zach Hicks define
1: gospel-centered worship? Yet another phrase that I have a love-hate relationship with. I mean, I begin my second book by saying gospel-centered's basically become a kind of cliche or trademark, you know, and it is, in a sense, trademarked because we've got a whole book series on gospel-centered everything, like gospel-centered pet washing or whatever. I don't know, <laughs> uh, and and you know, it it gets diluted. And I do believe that it's diluted because when I hear us talking about gospel-centered worship, I get the it's more than a sneaking suspicion. I I do I receive the understanding that we aren't all defining the gospel in the same way. And so for me, that's been a real important part of my own uh, inquiry, my own scholarship, my own kind of cross-disciplinary work as I think about gospel-centered worship. I want to be clear about what the scriptures articulate and indicate the gospel is. And so I do have to be a, in a, a bit long-winded to define it because it has to do a lot with the work that I've done in my scholarly level, but hopefully it can be things over the years that I can articulate in clean and more simple fashion. But if I'm defining what the gospel is, I might go to a place like 1 Corinthians 15 where uh, Paul seems to indicate it's, it's these three things. At the beginning of his chapter, he's, he's talking about the gospel that he's shared with them, that he's received, that he's delivering. And it is particularly these words, uh, uh, the word about Christ, particularly his life, death, and resurrection, and uh, the things surrounding this Christ event, the word about Christ uh, which is from the scriptures. So it's a word about Christ that's in the Bible from the scriptures that is declared from the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation could be the way that I'd interpret what Paul ultimately means. The word about Christ, which is from the scriptures, and finally, the which is for you. Um, to, for me to receive the gospel, I need to be hearing a particular word about Christ from the Bible that's for me. Um, it's not generically just for everybody, but when the gospel's coming at me, I need to know oh, this good news, it's for me. This word about Christ's finished work of, of life and death on my behalf as my substitute and in my place is a gift given by God for me. So that's the first part. That's, in a sense, what the gospel is. You start to read the scriptures, um, in, especially in, in Paul. And Paul's really clear that the gospel is what changes people. Romans one, it's the power of God unto salvation. First Corinthians one and two, it's this power of God that the spirit uses to actually change us. Second Corinthians three, it's, it's we, as we behold Christ, we are being transformed into his likeness. And the beholding of Christ is particularly beholding the word of the cross, Christ crucified, those sorts of things. Um, So, the change agent for the human, I mean, it's what we're all after, right? We're all after, how do I change? How do I change from becoming the, the kind of person that I acknowledge I am to the kind of person that God wants me to be? And the scriptures indicate that that change agent is the good news in the gospel. And the final like, part of the inquiry for me in scholarship has been to uh, listen carefully to exegetes of Paul particularly in relation to some of the work being done around conversations around justification. In, in the world of Pauline scholarship, justification has kind of fallen into, uh, into disrepute, or at least is, there's been this kind of voice amongst Paul scholars that justification needs to be sidelined or at least flattened amongst all the other great images of and metaphors of salvation like adoption, mm-hmm and redemption, and union. And alongside them, justification is another one of them. And Re- Reformation traditions have placed, because of Luther, have placed way too much emphasis on that. So justification shouldn't be viewed as the center of Paul's salvation theology or the center of the Bible's Salvation theology. And one scholar in particular, a Pauline scholar named Jonathan Linebaugh, who did a lot of work with John Barclay, who's regularly acknowledged as one of the, the world's leading Pauline scholars, has indicated that maybe justification uh, shouldn't, maybe center is not the right metaphor. And he introduced an idea given by Luther and a few others called uh, justification not only as a doctrine, but as a grammar. Um, And so here's where it interfaces with the gospel. If justification is thought of as a grammar, it might unlock for us how to understand whether we are gospel-centered in our worship or not. And the idea is, just um, just as the rules of grammar for me to speak English govern whether you can understand me. In other words, if I'm speaking English, as I abide by the rules of uh, English grammar, you are hearing what I'm saying clearly and effectively. I'm communicating well precisely because I'm operating by these rules. And when I don't operate by those rules, English gets muddied and communication, uh, in a sense, starts to fall apart. Justification is a kind of offers a grammar of the gospel. In other words, how do I know that when I'm giving you these words about Christ, whether or not you're hearing the gospel? um, It's not enough to just say if I'm checking all the boxes of things like atonement or cross, that the gospel is clearly preached because justification as a grammar tells me the gospel is clearly heard when apart from works, apart from the law, God is given through Jesus as a gift. I'm using language from a place like Romans 3, where Paul says, But now, apart from the law, a righteousness of God is given through faith in Jesus Christ. So what we're talking about is a classic Protestant distinction between faith and works. And what that means for the gospel is, I know I'm hearing the gospel clearly when I'm hearing it as total, unconditioned gift, And the gospel is not as clear when I hear commingled gift with what I must do or what I must give to the equation. What tells me that that's how I'm hearing the gospel clearly? Justification does, because justification is not only a doctrine of, in a sense, our law room righteousness before God. It's also a grammar that tells me whether or not I'm faithfully speaking the gospel and that grammar is, is offering uh, a way of speaking that is all gift and no works. So if I'm telling you God loves you in Jesus Christ, if, and then I, if I offer anything af- after that if, justification tells me I have not clearly proclaimed the gospel because I've added something that hooks on some condition and the gospel is most clearly heard when it is given as gift without conditions, because that's what it means to distinguish and to separate uh, faith from works. That's what it means to clearly uh, expose Christ as gift and not as um, demand. So that was a long-winded way. Uh, So when it comes to worship, worship that gives Christ as gift through its content and through its form and shape, and that distinguishes between what God has done for me in Christ from what I am doing for God is gospel-centered worship. And worship that confuses, muddles, or commingles mingles what I am doing for God and what God does for me uh, is less gospel-centered worship, if I can put it that way.
0: Your your kind of intro to uh book Worship by Faith Alone yeah, unpacks that uh yep. a, a little bit. So if others want to dig into that even more, see some of those footnotes of some of those that you were you were highlighting. Um that book primarily is about Thomas Cranmer. Yeah. Um first, for those of us who maybe don't know who that person is, again, we'll get to the how how maybe you see gospel-centered worship in the in the the reformational work he did um who who in the world is this guy i mean i i just walked by his his place of death in oxford um or martyrdom just a a couple months ago but for those that may not be familiar with him um even those who study worship at a high level sometimes maybe don't don't get get this character who is he
1: yeah, he's been a figure obscured by revisionist history, I'll put it that way. <laughs> and therefore, when many of us hear histories of the Protestant Reformation, we hear about figures like Luther, Calvin, maybe Zwingli, maybe even Martin Bucer, But you don't hear Cranmer named among the folks who are the Reformers that um, stand amongst the 16th century Reformation of, of the Church Catholic. But Cranmer is one of those figures. He was situated in England in the 16th century. He rose to prominence under King the famous, infamous King Henry VIII, the that Tudor era of divorce, uh divorce, beheaded, die. This is those who <laughs> know it's, all his it's wives. This volatile and, figure. Yeah. And Cranmer becomes his archbishop, in a sense, his chaplain, his central religious figure. So Cranmer becomes the overseer of Christianity in England. Um And Cranmer as this figure and as someone who over the course of his ministry and life starts to become increasingly overhauled in his faith by the good news of Jesus. I'll put it like that. Um, He reads Paul. He starts to read other reformers. He starts to read the church fathers freshly, and it gives him new eyes to see the scriptures. And he becomes increasingly convinced over the decades from the 1520s through the 1530s and 40s that the gospel uh, really is the great change agent that we've been talking about, and it really does upend and critique a bunch of things that have heretofore been a part of the practice of the church and have been uh, grown into the system of the 16th century medieval European uh, church of God. And so Cranmer emerges as a reformer, and my particular interest in in him is that while Luther and Calvin spent probably more of their time writing uh, works of of theological reflection or, or biblical studies, as we could put it today. Cranmer did some of that too, but a lot of Cranmer's work was spent on liturgical reform or what we might say as overhauling worship around his understanding of the gospel. That's what the Book of Common Prayer is, is Cranmer's architectural work. So Cranmer's this figure who gave us the, the Book of Common Prayer, which um, we could talk more about and its influence globally uh, as a result yeah, of, I mean, I know of ma- what he's done. Many people today actually have apps
0: of the Book of Common Prayer, may not know Cranmer's mm-hmm. story or even the, the roots of of this, but utilize that for personal devotion. Or again, those in the UK and the Anglican tradition should be very, very common. It may be sitting in their pew along with hymns, Ancient and Modern, or another another thing like that. How did this book like help reshape worship, particularly in, in that time period of the Reformation? How did that reshape? Shape yeah. worship particularly in the UK and then and then beyond
1: well when Cranmer created and architected the Book of Common Prayer he wasn't he wasn't um, putting together worship from scratch he was taking a bunch of received and the Uh, uh, contemporaneous and ancient liturgies that were being used in churches in England and in the medieval European world that span back through the centuries. In a sense, he was grabbing as many resources as he could, um, and none of those liturgies were in English until Cranmer's work. So uh, there is a reality in which if you are an English-speaking worshiper today, there's a very uh, strong case to be made that somehow your own DNA and heritage reckons with the work of Cranmer because before Cranmer, nobody publicly worshipped in English. Uh, So that was a shock to the system that you could hear the liturgy and participate it in in your mother tongue uh, because Latin was only something that the elites knew. So that would have been a shock. But the other thing that you notice, Cranmer isn't just translating older liturgies into English he's transposing them into the key of the gospel is how I'll put it so you see him uh, not only kind of doing a word-for-word movement from Latin to English he's editing he's moving prayers around he's excising words he's adding words and one of the burdens of what my study was trying to do was to to offer a hypothesis about one of the driving forces of his editorial work um, and that hypothesis is that because he was so taken by the gospel and to anachronistically kind of say he was tooled in the grammar of the gospel through justification, he sifted everything through that lens. And so what came out of the Book of Common Prayer for England was a very uh, a gospel-centered way of worshiping God. And so I would describe it as a fresh gift of the clarity of giving Jesus for sinners and sufferers to England. And as England engaged that, um, for those that were given ears to hear, I think it was transforming. So um, I think it offered a huge kind of um, shift in how people perceive their relationship with God uh, in England over the course of the centuries.
0: You talked about that, um, his, you know, both translation and even transposing. Are are there specific maybe texts or acts of worship that Cramer implemented that embody this, again, coming back to our discussion on gospel centered worship where you're really arguing yes there were these political forces there there were these other mm. things that now we really see clearly in other scholars but you're really arguing that he's gospel centered what what are maybe a, a is a specific act of worship a prayer a call to worship a liturgy that 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 highlights that yeah Kramer is really trying to embody to proclaim the gospel through through the liturgy
1: yeah, I'll give you two examples. Uh, one is a, a a structural change and one is a prayer that he added. The structural change um, for morning prayer. So this is uh, the daily office, which is the prayers that people pray daily. And this is not a public worship necess- public worship service, although many times it can be if people went to their, their parishes before work, they could pray morning prayer with others. Um, before... Uh, The liturgies that Cranmer had for various stages of morning prayer, and there are multiple kind of morning prayers before Cranmer condensed them all into one. You aren't confessing your sin until much later in the day. (laughs) Cranmer puts confession of sin and words of forgiveness or absolution right at the top of morning prayer. This is a novel move. The reason Cranmer does this, in my opinion, is because he wanted to signal, we don't need to confess our sin Later in the day, once we've accrued things to apologize for, because I've sort of woken up, bit of a clean slate, and then sinned, and then need to kind of be honest before the Lord. He wanted to signal that sin is much more fundamental than the things that I do. It's kind of baked into my flesh. You know, um, it is kind of a classic debate in the Reformation that I can simplify as, do we sin because we're sinners, or are we sinners because we sin? Um, and Cranmer's view was we sinned because we have a sin problem on the inside. So when I wake up, even before I commit any acts, I, I already need to come to God in need of fresh forgiveness and grace and to acknowledge this is who I really am. I am in Christ Christ. I'm also someone who lives in the flesh and and uh, am, is weak and needs to confess. And that structural change was novel, but it definitely signaled a kind of not I, but Christ as a way of living as a mm-hmm. Christian. Very much a kind of gospel-centered move. The other one is in the communion service, a newly minted prayer that no one had written before Cranmer called, uh, it's beloved by Anglicans and used elsewhere. It's called the Prayer of Humble Access. It's a prayer that, Uh, You pray right before you come to the table, right after you hear what's called the Sanctus, which is the heavenly song of holy, holy, holy. Right after that, people drop to their knees and they pray this prayer. We do not presume to come to this thy table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou, O Lord, art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy." Grant us therefore gracious Lord so to eat the flesh of thy dear son Jesus Christ and to drink his blood that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls washed through his precious blood and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us and in that prayer you kind of have encapsulate everything that he viewed the table as which is a fresh encounter of the total gift of Jesus Christ for us because God is most fundamentally a God whose property is always to have mercy. And, um, you know, we're never going to get rid of the prayer of humble access, I don't think, because anyone who's struggling hears that as the most beautiful, comforting news that you could imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's it's so beautiful. I think yeah, sometimes in, in worship
0: we do come thinking, this is really about, what we do for God, yep. that we sing yep. and we pray. And, and I think that prayer of humble access reminds us we can't even walk, walk forward to, to grab, uh-huh. to grab those crumbs or that swig of juice with, without yep. his mercy, without his grace, without the salvation he's He's given you, mm. you. You're right. Kramer teaches us that worship services need to operate like an evangelical gold pan to I sift see. faith from work, so that only the pure goal of the gospel remains, as faith alone remains. What about maybe not from Cranmer, but even from your own writing or liturgies used in your church? How how do you see corporate worship maybe functioning as this gold pan sifting faith and works? I think the the, the Eucharistic prayer you just gave is a great example, yes, but maybe yeah. something that's more twenty twenty three or twenty twenty four.
1: Yeah, I think anything that anything that offers me the ability to speak honestly before the Lord about what my actual life feels like and who I actually am without any hiding. Anytime you can get that honest, you are in the realm of the gold pan that is sifting faith and works. Um, The flesh, the old Adam and old Eve want to hide. They want to stand on their own merits and pull themselves by their own bootstraps. They want the opportunity to look God in the face and say, isn't there something that I can do and contribute that participates with you in my worthiness of your love and acceptance? Mm. And anything that um, in worship offers the opportunity for the old Adam and the old Eve to kind of stand on their own two feet and say, Look at what I'm doing for you, God. Look at my surrender. Look at my sold outness. Look at, um, at how I'm totally committed and given over to you. Anything like that is, is the opposite of what is the clear word of honesty, which is, gosh, left unto myself. If I'm honest, my struggles that are, are exterior to me but are pressing in on me, I can't transcend them. And then my sin inside is not something that I can solve on my own, all of which really do put me in a place of of being kind of unworthy of offering to you anything that would, in a sense, prompt you to offer your love to me and to say, that's a good son, that's a good daughter, I love them. So anything that helps me to be honest about that starts to do that sifting work so that when God's word thunders forth and, and declares Christ for you, apart from, apart from your works, even while uh, I was a sinner, even while I was an enemy of God, God loves me and gives himself to me through Jesus Christ. Um, that word said in that way, in that context, is powerful. So the worship songs that, in a sense, maybe try to break open the heavens, Based on how sincerely I'm singing, or how uh, fervently I'm praying, uh, don't give me a clear sense that blessings come from God because of Christ and Christ alone. So the more I can be honest about myself mm. and what what brings the blessings, I think the closer we get to allowing that that gold pan to really be operating well. Mm. We've been talking a lot about yeah the Reformation reformer
0: like. Cranmer and even some of the the theology of the Reformation. As you look at worship today, a lot of your work's in the South now, but you've traveled all over the U.S. and even beyond. Is is there any places you see where our our worship, our contemporary worship, needs a Reformation?
1: Yeah. um, It really does follow from kind of the stuff I was just saying. One of the waves of clarity that came over me um, occurred when I read Lester Ruth and Lim Sui Hong's book, A History of Contemporary Worship. Yeah. Uh, what's the exact yeah, title? I think that's uh, it. Uh,
0: praise and uh, contemporary no, Contemporary Praise and Worship. Because they're yeah. using contemporary worship and praise and praise that's worship right. as two different streams. Yeah.
1: The, the really careful and good work they do is to trace the history and unearth the liturgical theology of contemporary worship, which. Um, I think, in good ways and in, un, in less healthy ways, is based in um, the revival, the charismatic and Pentecostal movements and revivals of the late, uh, you know, late nineteen hundreds and twentieth century, and continue on to twenty first century. And insofar as contemporary praise and worship is encoded with that theology, there are some things, and th- that's what came to real clarity for me. There are some things that are encoded there that I do think need a, re- a reformation. Mm-hmm. And I'm speaking precisely of kind of the idea that um, the, g- the heavens are like a storehouse of blessing that are locked up and are waiting for sincere, sold out, fervent Uh, worshipers who worship in spirit and truth in a way that's uh, completely surrendered. And in a sense, the heavens are locked up until the key of my contribution of faithful and fervent worship unlocks the heavens and outpour the blessings of God in a way that paradigm is is encoded into um, some of the kind of worship practices and songs and expressions of worship such that it, Worship can tend to, and this is a pretty sharp critique, but it can tend to look more like a comparison between the worship of Elijah and the worship of the prophets of Baal, where the prophets of Baal are, in a sense, trying to summon down the fire by showing their God how serious they are about their devotion to the point of cutting themselves. You know, like, look at how serious we are. Won't you send down the fire? And the fire does not come. And then you compare it to uh, Elijah who simply prays a prayer of confession, a prayer of confession about his need and who's, uh, who God is as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. And then, in a sense, uses the gold pan and stacks all odds that this altar can, there can be any fire on this altar based on anything Elijah does. He soaks it with water, as if to say, if, this, if the fire's going to fall, the only thing that could possibly do it is God and God alone. and the fire falls and consumes, and all of a sudden you have a kind of picture of, oh, the fire falls not by my sincere devotion, but my acknowledgement of total need and dependence on the one who is devoted to me in and through Jesus Christ alone. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I read uh, that history book, I, I got clear eyes to sort of see what is in um, under the surface of a lot of contemporary praise and, and worship music, not all of it, uh, but is kind of there in the system, teaching us uh, things about God and and training us how to relate to Him in ways that I think need the sifting, so that the gospel can be clear. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: uh, a lit fellow kind of wrote a question that kind of follows from this um, idea of you know, can we use songs that may not explicitly highlight some of those things that you're sharing, some of those theologies, but we know we're coming from those moment, mom, movements, and again, full disclosure: I've played with some of those people you're describing. Know them, friends. Some of them have been on the podcast, so yeah. Um, uh, but, but I know, yeah. We've I've had this conversation a little bit with Adam Perez too, who's studying contemporary worship. But from your perspective as a church planner, pastor, someone who's been digging into Cranmer and thinking about theology and worship reforms, um, is 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 there space to draw the the gold from some of these movements in terms of their liturgies or their songs, hymns, or because of that kind of theological um, tributary or foundation that particularly in your your case, yeah, have strong reservations about or even strong critiques. Yeah. Um, yeah, what would you say to someone kind of wrestling
1: with that? Yeah, I tend to fall, if I'm just answering the question, question shortly and cleanly. Uh, I I don't dismiss songs based on their origin. I think the questions have to be way more complex than the preacher at the church that that song comes out of preaches a prosperity gospel or something else like that. I do think there's something to the argument of songs on their own merit. I think there's something to the argument about how songs um, kind of Receive new interpretations in local communities based on their liturgical surroundings. So a song can actually shift in meaning with the same words when sung by a different congregation and situated in a different liturgical moment. And that we don't give enough reflection on that. Um, I like, too, that at the same time, I appreciate really what Adam is reminding us is sometimes we're obsessed with like the the theology to the neglect of some of the ethics Mm -hmm. uh, and some of the things that play in that, that should give us pause about the economics of this stuff and where our money and royalties are contributing and to what, to what are they contributing and, and less about like, are they contributing so that this preacher can continue preaching heresy? I think I hear Adam uh, operating off a different paradigm of saying like, look at the kind of economic structures of the Uh, contemporary praise and worship machinery and, um, quote, industry and the way that it privileges certain voices and squashes and doesn't others. And what are the ethical implications for that? We need to reflect on that. And then local communities, like, uh, I I remember thinking, oh, I I would feel very different, say, if I was a congregation that was worshiping in Sydney. Yeah versus here and proximity like yeah. i know churches that are near Reading, and i would have to think differently about uh using songs from bethel if i'm in Reading uh, than i do in birmingham alabama yeah. you know than i do in sydney or in atlanta or some of these other those factor in and so i don't think it's a clean answer i think we need to ask them locally with our people and in prayer with discernment from the spirit, but I don't write it off. And one of the reasons I ultimately don't write it off is kind of my theology of sin uh, and the ubiquity of it. Uh, And if we're all, if this, once the sin hunting train leaves the station, it doesn't come back until everybody's mowed over. Yeah. So if I'm looking to uh, except, find except, a pure, except
0: who's driving? Who's driving? The, except
1: right. should, yes, except <laughs> who's, who's uh, the conductor? The, the one yeah. who comes to judge the <laughs> living and the dead. Our Lord and Savior well, that, Jesus No, Christ. I'm saying often those
0: sin hunters are the they oh, they never talk yeah, about yeah, yeah. The, their own depravity. But yes, yeah, also totally. until the one who's yeah, holy well, and
1: blameless. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. If we're following the metaphor through to its biblical conclusion, even those <laughs> those true. conductors get thrown off the train. You know. Um, yeah, and I do think that sometimes in our efforts toward a pure worship that's holy and honoring unto the Lord, we can lower the bar of the law and forget that if I dig deep enough into any one songwriter's or preacher's, uh, life or theology, I'm going to find things that are questionable, uh, and, and so, yeah, I, that factors into so it's I th- I find it a, a complex question, complex answer. Yeah, I appreciate even pulling back into some of our early conversation
0: on the 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 worship pastor, and there needs to be that emotional quotient too, that emotional intelligence. Yeah. That, yeah if you're in in Sydney or around a church that's had yes. this massive moral yep. failure or broke, and people have been, yeah, verbally, sexually abused, like yep. Don't use those songs. Like yeah. th- those songs have so much communal meaning and value yep. um, that those can, ha- yeah, can carry that meaning. That for a season you may need to stop singing those, not because you disagree with the theology or the musical style That's doesn't right. fit, but actually because people are coming from that that community that need healing and and restoration and those songs may not, may not be helpful. What, what songs yeah. do, do the church need to sing in this current season? This is from Bruce Benedict, Litfellow. Like as you think about some of our conversation and also your own pastoral work, what, what songs should, should we be singing or maybe types of songs?
1: Yeah. Um, I, it's a it's a now steadily beaten drum, and I appreciate this beaten drum. I think we still need to sing more of them, Songs of Confession and Lamentation. Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening to Adam Perez talk, and I was intrigued by when he was saying, I can't remember whether it was on his podcast or yours, where he was talking about, it's not just the language of lamentation, but it's the kind of musical encoding that doesn't give us a space for what we might call like the blue notes or the blue expressions of, of lamentation. Like we, our muscles are atrophied to be able to cry. How long? Oh Lord, to really engage these uh, what's baked into the Christian tradition and in seasons like Advent and Lent for, for waiting, for feeling the not yet of things and for crying out and uh, saying, why are you doing this Lord as a, as a truly, faithful way of talking and praying and singing to god and then yeah there are certain sectors of the church that don't confess their sin uh, but who sing blocks of songs from the ccli juggernauts and we need more and more modern worship songwriters out there who are willing to put words on the lips of the people of god that mirror psalm 51 that offer the language of confession in all its breadth, not just personal transgression, but kind of the broken system of the world and the um, the ways that I contribute to it, all that language. We need way more of that so that we can get at some of these things that we do find to be gaping holes in our formation of when we talk about worship and justice or worship and vocation or all these worship and conversations. I think that stuff gets unlocked as we in a sense, faithfully attend to the gospel um, and the pattern of the gospel that is present in confession and lamentation and is a part of it. So that's what I'd say. It's good challenges for those, particularly who are called to
0: write yeah, write the church's songs, Zach. Yep. As we wrap up, do you have a encouragement challenge for kind of scholarly practitioners? You know, worship leaders, pastors who are in the trenches, or even just some of my students who I make listen, listen to this podcast. Any any encouragement mm. for, or even challenge for for those of us who are listening?
1: Yeah, I guess my encouragement. I'd want to end with something like what Hebrews eight two teaches us, um, that. So When when we have these high-level conversations about worship pastoring, we can start to get in our head about all the things that need reform, all the things that need changing, and the burden can feel awfully heavy. And we can start to feel either inadequate or a little bit too arrogantly charged up, like I've got to change everything and all that stuff. And there's just a simple reminder that it is Jesus Christ himself who is every church's worship pastor. Hebrews 8.2 uses the language of uh, tone hagion latergos in Greek, but the, a minister in the holy places or a liturgist in the sanctuaries or uh, the closest thing to the title, worship pastor. And the only person ever really given that title in scripture is in that moment in Hebrews 8.2, and it's Jesus, not you or me, which means that Jesus is more committed to pastoring your local church in worship and leading us in 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 holy adoration than you or I ever are. And that's a relief. Uh, and that means that, in a sense, there's a bit more freedom to process these things without feeling the burden of, if I don't, our church is sunk. <laughs> mm. That would be a Messiah complex. That would be untrue. And the truth is, Jesus is every church's worship leader. Mm. And Jesus will see us through unto the end.
0: Mm. I love that, seeing seeing even the w- role of worship as Falling into the grace, the mercy, and salvation of Christ, Amen. who is the true worshipper. Amen. Zach, it's been a delight to get to know you and just yeah dive into your work. Thanks for yeah everything you're doing, both both in your local community, but also the work that's um, yeah helping shape this generation and, and our worship. Thank you. It's a delight to hear your voice in my ears. (laughs) My guest today has been Pastor Zach Hicks. Uh, Zach's a church planner, a worship educator, and has lots of great music and books available everywhere. So check it out. Also, uh, I'd encourage you to listen back to some of the other Worship Theology podcasts, some of the the conversations even today, connect in with the podcast with Lester Ruth, Shannon Baker, Adam Perez, Simon Chan, and and many others. So if you haven't heard those, dig into those as we continue to... um, Find this space between worship and theology and explore what, what what we need and what we're called to do in that place.